From the PSIA ASI Studios in Lakewood, Colorado, I'm George Thomas. You're listening to First Chair, and tonight we're going to be talking about optimal learning with Josh Fogg and Horst Abraham. Josh, Horst, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks for having us, George. You know, in our little pre-chat before we started talking, we brought up the name Maslow and how everyone knows that. And by the time we're done with this podcast, we want everyone to have the same feeling for the names Abraham and Fogg, correct? (laughs) (laughs) Several may have Abraham on the tip of their tongue already, I think. Surely you are jesting. (laughs) Let's get to the substance of the issue. (laughs) Now, I want to talk about you guys. <laughs> so, I'd really like to hear from both of you what you really feel optimal learning actually is. And Josh, let's start with you. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a great question to start because it actually is an acronym that we're that Horst and I use, and it comes from uh, two professors or two researchers, Dr. Gabrielle Wolf and Dr. Rebecca Luthwaite. Uh, um, they're One is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition Sciences at UNLV. Uh, That's Dr. Wolf. And Dr. Luthwaite is the Director of Research and Education and Physical Therapy and Director of Rehabilitation Outcomes Management at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehab Center in Los Angeles. And they teamed up to create this, this thought process Uh, And optimal stands for optimizing performance through intrinsic motivation and attention for learning. And when I've gotten to talk to them directly, they, one of my takeaways from the conversation with them is that what they're after is the, the crossroads of motor skill learning and, um, and, um, sports psychology and how to get motivation and motor skill learning and how to get things, our actions to overlap to hit the sweet spot for both of those items. Now, Horst, I don't want to insult you here, but learning something new like this, you've been teaching for a long time. I mean, you were like my idol growing up and I'm really old. So... (laughs) (laughs) That makes me a dinosaur. Thanks. (laughs) But what I I mean by that is you're really open to trying out some new things and teaching, it sounds like. Uh, I I really think as as a teacher in general and as a coach in specific, um, we have to acknowledge the very unique environment in which we're operating. As a matter of fact, oftentimes when I teach at the business school at the University of Michigan, I sort of brag at skiing and the mountain experience snow is really the best uh, um, the best environment in which uh, to really uh, generate learning and and benefit from it it is also the most challenging of all uh, learning situations that I've ever encountered so uh, in that context we're always looking for um, how can we make learning simpler more fun and more effective And I really think uh, after the long pauses of 
uh, the research that was provided by the likes of Mark Nook and such, uh, who gave us the uh, the uh, the uh, information processing models that uh, introduced us to how we actually internalize information and develop skills. Uh, there was a long pause in research until Wolf and Leewaith uh, provided us with uh, the simplicity that I've been looking for. It, it, it's sort of like the the, the, the golden grail of of all learning processes. And uh, to me, this is really an inflection point for ski instruction. It is not an add-on to me, as it may be for others. It is really something that fundamentally changes the way we approach learning and teaching. Back to you. Now, Josh, what does this mean for our students? Um, to me, what it means for our students is um, you know, one of the big takeaways from the last inner ski that I went to in Bulgaria um, was that many nations were talking about the impression that instructors leave upon students with when when we when we dive into deep details immediately. We leave this impression that the sport is uh, difficult and inaccessible and that you have to, therefore, as a student, uh, commit a lot of resources, be it time, be it money, uh, be it bandwidth, um, to, to be able to get good at the sport. Or, and that gets translated a bit into to be able to enjoy the sport. And to me, what simplifying instruction and simplify and, and making that learning more accessible leaves people with the impression that they can do this. They can, they can learn the sport, they can enjoy the sport um, at whatever capacity they want. And that leaves people with, to me, in my experience, that leaves them with the impression that um, a, the sport is fun, uh, that learning is fun, that it's interesting, that it's something that they would like to return to and supports the industry at large versus um, something that um, only, the, only the most committed <laughs> can, can really get into to enjoy. Um, and, and I think that that's an opportunity for us in the industry, uh, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. Now, Horst, I, I know from throughout your career, I mean, you've always put an emphasis on the student and them having a great learning experience. How is this any different for you? Um, by the way, I really admire the eloquence of, with which Josh uh, just sort of uh, framed our conversation yet again and pointed out the significance. What I would like to add to that is um, that many students have grown up and so have we as a profession uh, uh, believing that to know is to learn. I mean to say that cognition and uh, conceptual understanding is a, a prelude for learning. What Optimal does is to allow learning to truly be an experience, unencumbered, unburdened by needless cognition. And this is why a, a core group of us, uh, Josh being one of them, we're right now really sort of trying to explore and clarifying to ourselves what is the amount of knowledge we need to have as, as teachers and how much 
knowledge and what kind of knowledge does the student need in order to um, learn best and perform best. And uh, Wolf and Lee Waith essentially provide us with uh, an answer to that question, which means keep it simple, but in a very different way, the way we kept it simple in the past. Um, and uh, this is why optimal is to me a, a pivot point. And uh, I emphasize that because what we're still needing to develop is the sufficient understanding of optimal to also change our training methodology and the way we talk about learning and teaching and the way we define the role of the teacher, not so much as a task expert, but as a facilitator of learning. Uh, well said. And Josh, I was just going to say, I really like that Horst brought up training because I was going to say, if we're using Optimal with our students, aren't we going to want to use that with our staff when we're going through clinics? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it, uh, it's one of those pieces where I know I can speak in the um, Rocky Mountain division that we've uh, started working uh, with this material for a couple seasons now off and on. Um, and starting to look at how uh, our our examiners uh, and therefore our, our PSI Aussie trainers um, can start looking at how can how can they model the ideas because it is you're exactly right um, and I, I think it's important to point out I, I, I love how Horse makes a, a a great distinction in the cognition and the conceptualization of learning. And what we're really talking about is a, is physical motor skill performance and tapping into different parts of your, of your brain to what's the language that we need to use in order to tap into the part of your brain that learns how to move, not the part that taps into how do you think and uh, about skiing or riding but how do you do it mm-hmm. and i think that changes the experience again i'm going to circle back to that question about how does that exchange how does that change the experience for our students is that um one of the things that i that that i notice students say often is i get it but i don't know how to do it Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and they're telling us you're talking they don't realize that they're telling us maybe they do is that you're talking to the wrong part of me <laughs> you mm. know, i i understand i mean you you know i understand how skiing or snowboarding works but i don't understand how i can't do it and what i'd really like to be able to do is do it <laughs> So, Josh, I want to step back a little bit. Can you go through optimal and tell us what each of those letters stands for again? Yeah, sure. It's uh, so the it stands for optimizing performance through intrinsic motivation and attention for learning. It's a it's an it's just an acronym title that gets to that idea of the crossroads between. Uh, motor skill learning and and kind of uh, sports psychology. It's got three parts to it, and I think that's that's kind of the key right now. So far, we've kind of talked to, uh, about the benefits, but what is it is fairly well laid out by these two researchers, and it kind of speaks to three main points. Is how I look at it. 
it's it's using language and using when you're giving instruction, providing instruction that uh, creates external focus, which George, you and I have spoken about on past podcasts, what mm-hmm. that means. The second part is that it talks about enhancing expectancies. And we can circle around to what, well, like, to unpack that real quick. If, if, I, if I had to give it a stab here, it's essentially um, praising effort and not necessarily recognizing what's a good effort and what's a good try uh, versus only uh, rewarding uh, absolute perfection and, and the, cor- the absolute correct movement. It's kind of recognizing that <laughs> learning is occurring. And to, and to recognize and praise that as you go along and to create an opportunity for people to uh, make mistakes along the way. I know Murmur Blakesley has talked about that a lot um, in, through some of her books. The, the last piece is called autonomy support. And that's uh, language that essentially speaks to giving the learner choices options um, along the way choices about how they want to learn when they want certain information Um, it's not necessarily providing every single option out there but it's providing some options along the way rather than dictating every moment of the of the lesson and every moment of the instruction Horst, I really loved what Josh said. Uh, the feedback part really stood out to me because I feel like one of the most empty praises you can give someone is, wow, that was a great job. Well, what was great about it? You know, the, the, the praise needs to kind of be indicative of what we did and give us some, some recognition for what was what we did that was great. Does that make sense? <laughs> And by the way, as we talk about uh, feedback and that specific feedback that we're sort of fishing for, um, we need to be very specific in uh, recognizing achievements on on, on the long scale of achievement, meaning to say we can perhaps acknowledge uh, achievements that are very obvious and uh, and can actually be observed and, and perhaps even measured. And we can also acknowledge the smallest little pieces of evidence of what it is we're looking for and shift the attention to that so as to give it the potential to grow in light of the positive support that we're providing. So it's really a midwife process of a sort uh, where the instructor needs to keenly observe what is happening in in the context of what I wish to uh, move to and begin to reinforce that to create an expectation or the expectancy of I can do it I do do it and now you're just asking me to vary it in some fashion or form in terms of intensity or even quality. So the the, uh, complexity of teaching has shifted very much to a much finer point of recognizing um, achievement versus goal, or not achievement and goal, I should say, the creative tension between the two. Now, Josh, according to that Abraham model of communication, Ha, see, we're bringing in. (laughs) 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 What does this mean for us as teachers? Because we really need to now maybe be having clinics more in our communication skills or things like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Horst, I mean, geez, Horst said that so well. Yeah, he did. <laughs> it's, you know, I, th- I think there's a distinction. I think when in our training, I think we're, we spend a lot of time in our, in my experience in our training, trying to understand what the, what the, what what's right what's what's the kind of the what's the perfection mm. piece mm-hmm. like what's what's the what what tell me you know i want to know i want to understand what's the best possible basic parallel turn and we get into all the details so that we spend a lot of time recognizing being able to recognize it when we see it and being able to direct people towards you know that outcome it's just an example um but the actual moment of inst- of instruction and coaching and and uh, uh, I like the, that idea of midway thing <laughs> is that it's it's that do you know what the first little semblance of 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 that step will look like so that you can encourage it so that you can recognize it can you can you communicate uh, the idea in a way that leaves people with the impression before they've tried it mm-hmm. that they could do it mm-hmm. and more mm-hmm. than just more than just cheerleading more than just going ah of course you'll be able to do this I, you know i've taught lots of people who ski it's it, you know it's recognizing um what is it that this person's bringing to the table and, and therefore connecting directly with the person so it goes back to some some sayings that stick with me of I'm not teaching um, skiing to people I'm teaching people skiing um, maybe how to ski but uh, you know once once they get kind of the basics you're teaching them skiing <laughs> uh, so it, it definitely changes our communication the fact that I, I think I spend less less time trying to correct Mm. movements and more time trying to encourage Mm. movements and and it's almost like i'm trying to you know blow on a a coal to to ignite a fire you know is how it's kind of the 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 metaphor i have in my mind versus Mm. looking at a little flame and going no no it's supposed to be hotter that's supposed to be a bigger flame <laughs> More of the logs should be on fire. It's it's like okay, how do I get that little bit? How do I how do I how do I breathe some life into that to make it into a bigger fire? Mm. I like that a lot, if I may. Um, and and it pulls me back to something that you said earlier, Josh, uh, when you when you spoke about how we connect with a student uh, matters so much, and it so much paves the way or obstructs the way, uh, and the trust that we need to develop in order to create this collaborative team effort that we call learning, because learning is really a social uh, a social activity, and mm. finding our role and responsibility in that as a coach is important because if we make this relationship asymmetrical, mean to say we dominate uh, the that relationship and that synergy is lost. So working towards symmetrical relationship and shared responsibility for what we're looking at, how we're going about it and so on and make it truly collaborative, that is really where the magic happens. Back to you. It is, and it's it's it can be a really unnerving place for people to for the instructor to be. Mm. 
as, as you've said in the past, Taurus, I, I really like it. It's it's less of being the knower when you're teaching. And yeah. Um, yeah. There, is, there is an element where I'm not entirely sure how my day, how my lesson is going to go. But the, but the answer, I don't have to have the answer per se, because we, myself and my student or my students, um, have the answer between us. And, and that, you know, I've heard a lot of people ask recently about, um, you know, be, <laughs> uh, diverging here a little bit, but um, working with the People Skills Task Force and, and and people ask about like, well, what is collaboration? It's, it's, you know, to me, it's working with our student to figure out what, what's the next play, what's the mm. next step in our progression today, if you will, rather than me knowing what the next step in the progression is always going to be. Mm. Mm. And that, and like you said, I, I love that idea of it. It totally changes learning into, you know, I, I think about some of the best instructors that I know, they always walk away going, man, I learned as much in that lesson as my student did today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's that social, uh, it's that, it's that social experience that you, you mentioned. And, and by the way, the consequences of truly believing that and acting in accord uh, is that when I approach a lesson as the knower, as the task expert, I've already failed the assignment. I have to come into it with curiosity and capacity for learning far more so than knowing. As a matter of fact, I usually I remember my days when I really had mediocre lessons. Uh, It was when I entered into the lesson as a knower, as a task expert. And by the way, where we drilled in the Austrian and French uh, ski school to show up that way. You know, mm-hmm. what else could be your role then to know better than the student? And it's not so much about being ignorant or being dumb or uninformed, but it is about framing the relationship in such a way as to make it full of energy, curious energy, and, uh, and experimentation in which we both succeed and fail and feed each other in terms of what's relevant. You know, so as as uh, Josh just insinuated a little bit, if I arrive at the point in a lesson where we're sort of looking for, so what's next? Why not inquire with a student and and, que- and query them, you know, what would be great to attach to what we've already accomplished? What would make you feel stronger, better, smoother, or whatever it may be that really would add meaning to our process here? And then hitchhike on that. Exactly. And the, I think I, I, I love all that that you're saying, Horst. And to me, it, it you, you brought up so many it, it, so many pieces and phrases that I you know I just came a, away from a, a national meeting where we were you know kind of looking at our newest national assessment form in the teaching and the you know conversations that I've had about well there's a lot of pieces in our exams right now about teaching and and that is a big part of why um this uh, optimal learning is is valuable to me uh whether you know obviously we've talked about the benefits for our students but one of the benefits for us as the teacher is it simplifies our game mm-hmm. plans 
and it makes it so that I can I don't have to juggle as many items in my head. I really just need these three items of like, uh, you know, am I giving instruction that has an external fo- focus? Am I creating uh, an atmosphere of enhancing expectancies and, and recognizing how to foster mm. growth? Am I giving choices in this lesson to them? Am I letting them have a say in that autonomy support? Am I am I looking at the lesson through that lens? And if I'm looking at it through those three pieces, um, even in a in a in a certification exam right now, if you're teaching with those three focuses you're going to pass. Those three lead to success in all of the criteria that we've set out for the examiner to observe about a lesson. And, and to me, that's, that's the key here is that I don't have as a, as a member of the association, I don't have to go through and try to memorize the scorecard and look at 17 things to try to accomplish. I just need to think about three things that are focused on my student yeah. Yeah. and I'm going to, and I'm going to get all those. And, and that, that's powerful to me. That's powerful and wonderful. And pardon for ripping the talking stick away from you, George, but I'm so inspired <laughs> every time I have a chance to speak with Josh. It, it just, you know, takes my breath away. And what he what he says and what we've said collectively also poses a challenge for us. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that, Josh, because the challenge I see and hear about just this morning, I had a conversation with local instructors while we were baking bread of all things. And um, what we talked about was the expectant, the expe- expectation of instructor, of, of, of clients to be in the passive seat, to be told, to be taught, to be lectured, to be told what to do and how to do it, and how to now, in, in, in the presence of optimal, we have to somehow meet their needs where they are and then begin to sashay them in the direction of optimal. So there's added challenge of translating uh, and, and helping students learn to learn essentially in the best and optimal way. Yeah, back to you. I, I love it. I love it. So this was uh, certainly not as eloquently as you just put it. I, uh, I remember asking doctors Wolf and Luthway about this, about, well, what mm. if what if people don't want to engage with me? Mm-hmm. And they both said that is that actually falls under autonomy support. Is you've given them a choice, mm-hmm. you've given, mm-hmm. but but your choice doesn't have to stop there, right? So it's like, well, what would you like to do today? I I don't know, Josh. You're the expert. You tell <laughs> us what to do. Okay, I've given you the choice, and you gave it back to me. From but the way I try to think about it. Uh, as as you said it, how do I? How'd you say that? Sashay back over and get them to learn how to, <laughs> how, to learn. <laughs> how to learn, right? Is that I say, okay, they've given me the, they've they've bounced the ball back in my court here for a moment. I'm going to make a choice right now because mm. I don't I don't need to get uh, uh, you know I don't need to start things off and say no 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 no. For you to learn, you're going to have to make a choice. They just did. They told me we'd like yeah. to you know yield to you. Uh, okay, I'm going to make the first choice, but with in that, right? Okay, maybe we should start out. Well, whatever it is, let's start focusing on some some edging movements. Would you guys like to focus on how the ski works or how the boot works for that? 
And mm-hmm. so what I've done is boop, pop that right back in their court. And if I do that enough times, eventually they are going to take that bait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to bite. And when they bite, that can, even if it's a little nibble, then I know to me, when I'm teaching, I go, oh, now, now I've got their engagement all of a sudden. Now I'm, now I'm getting them. Okay, what else can I do here? And so there's these tiny little, uh, almost, to the, at first it may seem like really insignificant choices along the way that cumulatively add up to big choices mm. rather than, rather than try to present them with the whole choice at once, tiny little ones along the way. And before you know it, uh, it's kind of like a conversation. It may be kind of one sided at yeah. first, but if you, if you offer enough back to the other person, suddenly you've got a good two way going. Mm. Well, elegantly spoken, Josh, elegantly spoken. Um, and, uh, that really sort of poses a, another learning frontier of critical thinking on the part of the instructor. You know, yeah. how do I build these Trojan horses by which I can ferry them from their own biases and expectations to how I know they will learn best? And how can I ignite that feeling that we also explain as the learning addiction because of the ownership of what it is we're doing, of recognizing the successes and my responsibility of having created those successes. So they bite ultimately with great enthusiasm and engagement and will prefer that modality of of teaching and interacting over what they came into the lesson with. So wonderful, you said, Josh. Uh, I I love hearing you speak about that. Yeah, same. I, I, I you always ask good good questions and, and thought provoking, and um, you know, I, I I do think I think that critical thinking is is key in our jobs. Is that um, there are so many decisions mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. made in any lesson yeah. and in any piece of instruction, and and, and they're just. Lots and lots of little ones is how I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I get stuck, you know, be it a be it a certification exam, you know, I've been there, been frozen up, didn't know what to say. And when I realized that I didn't need to have all of the answer yet, I just needed mm-hmm. a, a little bit of an answer. I needed to make the first small decision and I didn't necessarily have to have all the answers. I could engage with the students in my group. Mm. They often have wonderful answers. <laughs> I am always <laughs> so impressed yeah. with yeah. how good of an answer they have and how much they are holding back. Mm. <laughs> Playing dumb. Yeah, or uh, I like to think uh, I like to think that they're being polite, and, and there's a lot of deference to mm. uh, you know the the expertise that we that we bring to the to the world, mm-hmm. not just in understanding technique, but in in our decision making and understanding the mountain environment. Uh, and and I'm always so impressed with simple little choices like. Do you want to try that again? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and and oftentimes they, I I find them say, yeah, and 
and they add on, yeah, I'd like to try it again. And I want to go a little bit faster and I want to try it a little bit slower. Yeah. I'd like to try it again, Josh. And can you, can I follow you while I'm doing it? Or they, they add something to it or they respond. No, I'm good with that. I think the next thing I want to do is blank and they give you the next step. <laughs> they just hand it to you. <laughs> All we have to do is ask and listen. Oh, yeah. Come on. Exactly. Couldn't be that simple. <laughs> it just doesn't look like it. <laughs> but, you know, uh, George, uh, not having heard your voice, I almost uh, feel like apologizing to you. But when we no, arrive at that, level, that le- at that level of enlightenment that we can park our ego and even ask for help, from our from our uh, from our client you know that really sort of seals the relationship in its essence when it truly becomes collaborative when we really listen and we hear what it is that's coming through and then those little things that you talked about that are small scalpels of shaping quality that is really what requires a new level of training and understanding of what we're talking about so while optimal pushes it to profound levels of simplicity the process in order to balance with that and dance with that topic will require new and different kind of training as i see it and what i would love to do with both of you is uh because there is a whole lot of information here is have you on uh for another podcast or two where we can go into more details uh that we're looking at we do need to wrap up um And what I would like to close with here is one, some of my podcasts, I used to have secret words that I wanted to hear people try to work into the interview. And horse, you got Trojan horse, small scalpel and sachet. I am really impressed with that. I love love talking with horse because the the richness of the language. It's so, it's so It was beautiful. (laughs) It's because I don't know how to speak English. That's what. <laughs> so the question I would like to end this uh, show with tonight is, uh, again, to both of you, but how now do we get this to our membership so that we can start to teach this way? Josh? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, honestly, you know, when I think about how to get it to the membership, I uh, my methodology of training is always... Um, uh, figuring out how to grow a message exponentially, right? So, mm. Mm. I mean, I, I look at this. I look at this wonderful opportunity that we've had this evening here. Um, you know, uh, I haven't gotten to talk to Horst in a while. I haven't gotten to hear how he says things, and I'm always so inspired by it. And hopefully just this this podcast starts to, to build some curiosity. Um, you know, the, uh, I... Uh, and just finished a first draft of an article that'll be in 32 degrees that talks about mm. uh, some differences between external focus and internal focus to try to unpack that idea a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully that um, between those two things, I, I suspect that uh, I may be hearing from Wendy Shrupp again uh, soon to write some more <laughs> about some other pieces here. And I think the third piece, you know, one of the pieces that, uh, you know, that, that I know is one person that I can, that I can affect is, um, when I'm doing an event like national Academy or any of the, uh, clinics that I get to do around the country right now, um, I take these thoughts that we've had tonight and 
I share with with the uh, with the participants um, that I'd like, with their permission, to try some new stuff. I want to try an approach that I think is more effective, and I and I lay all the cards out on the table ahead of time. Say this: these are the things that I'm trying to use. I'm trying to use. I'm going to try to use enhancing expectancy. I'm going to give you choices along the line. I'm going to give you some autonomy support. And I'm going to give you instruction that's externally focused. If you want other than that, here's the autonomy support that I'm modeling. You have to ask me for it. <laughs> and I may or may not give it to you. <laughs> and I may or may not, but but I'm inviting you right there that I'm saying, but but those pieces, so I'm trying to model it, I'm trying to talk about it, I'm trying to write about it. Um, and I'm open to other ideas here, of what else we can do to, again, um, make this common language for us in our industry. Allow me to add to that. And, and by the yes. way, I would pay big money, whatever I could afford to be a student in that kind of class, Josh. And I know it would be a fantastic experience. What I think from an institutional point of view, we can do something else. Yeah. Um, having taught change management now for 35 years at the business school, there is one little process or one series of phrases we trigger a process with, and that's called what's ending, what's beginning. And mm. I really think from an institutional perspective, we need to have the wisdom and the courage to say there are certain aspects of what we have done so far that we will need to look through different lenses with, such as movement analysis, such as how we classify the value and merit and how we use technical information, which used to be such hallmark topics in our past training. And I'm not sure whether we're quite ready to have the courage to do that. Not so much ending as in tossing it out, but reframing how we see it, how we use it, and how we interpret it. And that hasn't happened yet, and I, I feel there is resistance to doing that because many of us, including myself, have defined our position in the industry on the basis of being great at MA and being great at understanding physics, the physics of skiing. And we need to learn to reposition that, not put it away by any means, but reframe how we use it and how we how we uh, talk about it. Of course, that's my I I absolutely love how you phrase that because I've heard you mention this concept before, and the fact mm. you're talking about how do I reframe it or reposition it rather than how do I get rid of it? I, not that, at all. Yeah. That, Yes, exactly. And and I think we're unsure. <laughs> um, there's yeah, there's a lot that hinges on it, but I love that idea. That's well, we, need, we need to talk again. Yeah. I look forward to having both of you on in the next couple of weeks for part two of this, uh, if not sooner. And of course, if you can work in the phrase Aurora Borealis into one of your responses, <laughs> I will buy you a pint of beer. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on that as soon as I find what it means. <laughs> well, Josh Fogg, Horst Abraham, it has been wonderful chatting with you. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. Thank you so much for joining us on First Chair. What an honor. Thank you. Thanks for having us. From Thank the PSI ASI studios in Lakewood, Colorado, I'm George Thomas. <laughs>